0: this morning if you could, you could go ahead and turn your Bibles to John, uh, John chapter 1 is where we're going to be at if you have a Bible. If not, there should be a one of our little blue ones next to you. You can pick that up and use it. Uh, the verses also be on the screen. Um, and so, John chapter one. So this morning we're going to continue in our study, our five-week study. We're in week three now of our study. Who's your one? And uh, and this is this is us as a community of faith, as Christians in this building this morning. That this is kind of us wrapping our mind around our desire to minister to, to pour into the life of one person in this year to come. That we're going to say, hey, there's just uh, not that we're just giving all our time to one individual, but in our discipleship, in our evangelism, in our witnessing that we're just pouring into this relationship with the hopes to see this person in our life come to faith in Christ or be molded into the family of God in in the faith family like the local church, which is where God uses the people God uses to accomplish his task. And so, um, you know, this morning we're going to continue in that. And and, and this morning, uh, specifically what we're going to talk about, you know, as we've talked about who's your one this morning, what we're going to talk about specifically is why it is important for that one. Why is one important? The importance of one. And, uh, you know, just as I was preparing and as I was getting ready and kind of thinking about it, um, you know, the number one we don't see is very significant most of the time. You know, uh we, we I know for me specifically, uh, for some reason, a lot of my examples went to food because I like to eat. And so like one of anything is just never enough unless it's just really big. But, uh, but, you know, one, the number one in a lot of senses we see is insignificant, right? I mean, you order fries on a hamburger, one fry it just doesn't seem like it's enough. Uh, one chip in the bottom of the bag normally gets thrown away. Uh, one checkout person at Walmart, as we all know, is miserable for everybody. It doesn't accomplish the task. Like, we all have better ideas of how that should run, right? Uh, if you've ever played golf, I know for me specifically, one golf ball is not enough. Uh, I usually spend more time hunting golf balls than I do hitting golf balls. And then, uh, then I don't know if you've heard this song before. Probably so. It's an old song. A band called Three Dog Night. They put out a song. One is the, It's called One. And the whole idea is one is the loneliest number. You know, if you've ever heard that song. You know, and so this idea that, that one is just insignificant. But for me, and I came across this this week. Uh, one of the, my favorite people in TV. He would think of it differently. Uh, if the question is one is the loneliest number, what he would say is he would say false. That zero, do we have that picture? We can pull that up real quick. This is how he would respond to that. That false, that zero is the loneliest number, right? Zero is the loneliest number. And the people who watch The Office, they'll get that. For the rest of us, go home and watch The Office. It's on Netflix. So too often we overlook the number, one. We see it as, as insignificant. We see it as not worth our time or not worth our value or not worth our effort. And so what, what we have to see though this morning and what I hope that this whole idea is about as we move into this season of our church and everything that we do, that, that we see that there is more to one than what we than what we give credit for. You know, especially when it comes to the work of God's kingdom on earth. I mean, the Bible tells us that heaven celebrates one coming to faith in Jesus. That the Bible tells us that he, Left the ninety nine in search of the one uh, sheep. That it says that that in the parable when Jesus is telling it, it says that that the woman looked for the one coin that she saw as valuable that was worth her time, and that she sought out that one. You know, and so for us this morning, I pray that we could see the value one. C. S. Lewis. I hadn't shared anything from C. S. Lewis in a while, but this is what he says about one. He says the salvation of a single soul. It's more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. And so what he's talking about specifically is he's talking about literature. This was his life's work was literature. If you know who C.S. Lewis was, C.S. Lewis's life work was literature. And he says that the salvation of one soul is greater than my life's work. It's greater than any of our life's work. It's greater than anything that we would ever do. If we lead one person to salvation in Jesus Christ in our lifetime, it makes our lifetime worth it. That that's why we exist, is to enjoy God and to bring glory to God. And so we want others to be a part of that and to participate in that glory. We want them to see that and enjoy that. And just a few statistics for us as we consider one or we consider reaching out and evangelizing the people around us or in our life. Uh, Tom Rainer, uh, his study says this, uh, talking about the unchurched and reaching the unchurched. It says 82% of unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. So 82% of unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited, but only 2% of church people will invite someone to church in their lifetime. So that means that 98% of people who go to church regularly will not invite someone to church in their lifetime. 98% of Christians. You know, if, if all, all that we do, all this is so great and so glorious as we say it is, why is 98% of us not participating in bringing others into that, right? That, is, that should be how we respond. Uh, seven out of 10 unchurched have never been invited to church. Sixty seven percent say a personal invitation from a friend or family member would be very or somewhat effective in getting them to visit church. Sixty seven percent of the people around us are just waiting for us to invite them. They're waiting for us. They're just looking, you know, and that's the thing that these studies are showing is that, you know, we want to put, we do Facebook stuff, we do, you know, whatever ever else you put out, publications, we put out trying to invite people or get people to come. It says the number one effective tool in inviting people or evangelizing people or witnessing to people is personal. Personal invitations, personal communication, personal investment in somebody's life beyond just the external things that we do. Because the reality is, church, for all of us, whether, you know, for, for you Christians here this morning, that most of us, a lot of the people around us that we experience at work, maybe even in our family, are, are lost people. That, that they are not saved people. And so they, they, they are waiting for our invitation, you know, and I love how Paul would say this, you know. Uh, when we look at that, you know, how are they, are they saved or not? And, you know, is there any fruit in their life, any spiritual growth or development? Do we see that happening? you know, in their life. And so for a lot of us, as we evaluate those people around us, we have to see these things and see their need for Jesus. And, and not so much for my benefit, but for their benefit, not that we're better than them if we've already placed our faith in Jesus, because the reality is we're just a bunch of messed up people like anybody else. We just desperately need Jesus to carry us through every moment in our life. And not because we're, well, it is because we're weak, but not because this Jesus is a crutch, but because Jesus is everything. Okay, and we'll talk about that a little more as we move through this. But to see, you know, as Paul would say, he says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says that I'm not ashamed. You know, for us as we share, as we look for our one, as we evangelize our kids, our families, that we would not be ashamed. And this word ashamed means to be to fear to do something, to fear to do something, or reluctant because of fear or embarrassment or of rejection. And he says later on in that verse, he says, it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the message that we proclaim, it is the power of God. Not my power, not my abilities, or my talents. You know, the, the recurrent theme of all of this is that it's not how able you are but how available you are, that we are being personally invested in people, personally reaching out into people's lives, being a church that is an organism, not an organization, that we're not just this establishment that people come to, but we're something that goes out from here and that interacts with people. And so this morning in John chapter 1, verse 5, as we kind of talk about this idea of the importance of one, uh, we'll see from this experience or this situation, uh, one person impacted. And and Jesus' intention in the midst of that and how we can learn from that this morning. So John chapter 1, verse 45, we'll start there. John chapter 1, verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, he said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and seek. Verse 47 says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael, verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, Greater, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He said, you will see greater things than these. The first thing that I want us to see this morning from this situation, what God has called us to and what he has invited us to participate in as Christians, as believers this morning, is that we should be, we should commit to being an intentional witness. That we should commit to being an intentional witness. Verse 45, it says this. It says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him. Before this, in verse 43, I just love how these chain of events work out. In verse 43, uh, we see uh, in in the title kind of of this section, if you have an ESV, it'll say it like this. It says, Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. Because right before this, it says that Jesus went out and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. So Jesus intentionally sought out Philip. And shortly after this, it says that Philip follows suit in this mission. It says that he went and he found Nathaniel, That he intentionally sought after him of the same way Jesus has sought after Philip. In the same way that Jesus' church seeks after each and every one of us. That he sought after him. And he went to find him. And that he called out to him. And so for us uh, to see that God is calling us to be intentional witnesses as Philip was. You know, Philip embraced the same mission. And those who accept Jesus Christ's identity will embrace his mission also. That's what he's invited us into, in, in embracing this mission. And the thing that I love about this, you know, it, there's a, it's hard to tell sometimes between verse to verse like what the time frame is. Sometimes it can be a long time. Sometimes it's a short time. You know, the verses aren't broke up by time. It's just kind of laid out and, and put together for us to make it easy for us to understand. But You know, so shortly after Philip would have encountered Jesus, come to know Jesus, he's immediately embracing the mission and he's going out and then he's seeking someone out and then being intentional about witnessing, about evangelizing to this person. You know, and the thing about Philip is we hear about Philip later on in John and Philip didn't have it all figured out. There's two situations specifically where Philip kind of drops the ball and he's not really understanding the situation. He's not really following what Jesus is trying to do. In John chapter six, verse seven, uh, he's the one that's counting the bread whenever uh, the five thousand come. And Jesus is like, hey, we're going to feed him. And Philip's like, hey, the bread wouldn't be enough. And so he's just missing what Jesus intends to do. Uh, And so he didn't have it all figured out whenever he reached out to Nathaniel in, in John chapter one. And so then we see again in John chapter 14, Philip comes to Jesus and he says, hey, will you show us the father? Like we want to see God. And then Jesus has to tell him, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Philip didn't have all the answers. He didn't have it all figured out. All he knew is that Jesus found him and that he found Jesus and that he wanted to bring Nathaniel into this finding faith in Jesus. He said... He wanted to invite him. He was intentional. He wanted to share that with him. And so then history tells us that eventually Philip would be martyred for his faith as a missionary. So Jesus sought out this one, and this one would become a missionary, and many others would come to faith because of this one. What we invest in now, church, outside of this mission, will not matter beyond the day that we die. What we invest in now will not matter beyond this mission. And this mission spills over into everything. This mission spills over into our workspace. This mission spills over into our families, into our relationships with our kids and the people around us. This mission, anything done outside of this mission will not matter the moment we take our last breath. But the one we invest in, the people that we invest kingdom investments in, that will matter. That will carry on beyond us. That's our legacy. That's what we're created to do. That's what our life is supposed to be. Because for for Philip, you know, Nathaniel, who would also be called Bartholomew earlier later on in Scripture, they they believe that these two people are the same person. And there's not uncommon for in scripture for people to change names. I mean, Simon became Peter and Saul became Paul. Like those things just happen as people would grow and would change in their life. But for, for Nathaniel, he would become an apostle. He would become a missionary to Asia. He would bring the the gospel to Asia. And then he would be martyred for his faith. And so because of this one that Philip reached out to, because of this one that he sought after, many others would come to faith in Jesus because of him. A whole continent would receive the gospel because of his work. Philip saw the value, not only in the message, but in the one, in the individual. He saw Nathanael was worth it. And Nathanael was worth his time. Nathanael had not proved anything to him. Nathanael had not shown him anything that made him seem worthy. He was just in the vicinity. He was just there. He was a human being created in the image of God that Philip said, He needs to hear this. He needs to see Jesus. He deserves it. Matthew 13, 45 through 46 says this. It's talking about the value of one. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven or the work of the kingdom of heaven is like like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sold all that he had and bought it. Because the kingdom work is that valuable and that includes not only the message and the method but that cl- includes the person or the individuals that are at the at the at the target of that message philippians 38 Paul saying, he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The value of this message and the value of the individuals that we present this message to and and invest this message into in our work, whether it's our one, whether it's our families, whether it's the individuals that we interact with on a day to day basis. And so Philip was intentional. He was an intentional witness. And so not only that, but continuing on in verse 46, he met some, some resistance, right? He met some resistance. In verse 46, he says, Nathanael responds in this way whenever Philip reaches out to him. Nathanael says this. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The people in this area, they would have looked down on anyone, not only Jews, but they would have looked down on the people of Nazareth. They would have looked at him as lesser class citizens. But Jesus came from Nazareth. And so that's just a beautiful, God just does so many things to just turn things up on their heads and, and, and changes how our perspective would normally be of individuals and people and their status and where they, what they deserve and where they should come from. And then Jesus just totally blows all those things out of the water. And then Nathaniel responds in this way with this resistance where he's like, I mean, does anything good come from Nazareth? Does anybody or anything or anybody worth mentioning come from Nazareth? You know, and in a lot of times in our evangelism and our witnessing to people, we're going to meet resistance. Especially as we grow and we, we continue to move forward in this hostile culture of people who want, we were talking about this yesterday. People who just want to argue for argument's sake or want to be right or want to justify things in their own life. They want to just argue about everything. And so for us, there's going to be constant resistance at times. Whether it's your one or the people that you're evangelizing to, there's going to be resistance. You know, you're going to get the arguments you got you and you, you're going to get those things like, well, what is Christianity done for anybody? What good is it for me? What is it? What what good has it done for you? Well, I mean, really, what is it worth? Like, is it has it done anything other than than cause heartache and hurt and pain and wars and all that? Like, is Christianity worth anything more beyond that? You're going to get resistance in this same way. Where is there any good to it? Is there anything about it that makes it worth my time, that makes it worth my effort. You know, he met resistance. And listen, we have to understand for one thing that there's a difference between resistance and rejection. You're going to get tons of resistance. You're always, in most situations, going to get resistance. Not as often will you get outright rejection. Because remember, like those statistics told us, that there's 67% of people in, 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 our, in our circles, that they're open to those conversations. That they're, they're open to hear what we have to say. 82% say that they're likely to attend if invited, if interacted with. There are tons of people. They may be resistant, but that doesn't mean that they're rejecting it. We just have to be willing to push through that resistance a little bit. And I love how Philip would push through it, that he didn't turn away. He didn't give up. He didn't argue with him. He didn't give him some fancy sales pitch that I feel like as Christians, we think we have to like lay it out there as this sales pitch, like we're going door to door selling vacuums or Bibles or something. You know, we 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 feel like we have to have this argument. But I love Philip's response in verse 46. You see that the end of verse 46 after after Nathaniel says that he says, come and see. Come and see how simple. But how beautiful of a statement for an individual to make. I mean, he, he didn't come out and say all these deep theological things, all these doctrinal things. He didn't really do a whole lot. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't even answer Nathaniel's question when he said what good could come from Nazareth. He didn't start to say, well, listen, I mean, Jesus has done this. He's done this. He's got all these things he's accomplished. I mean, like he's the son of God. He, he didn't. I mean, and those things are valuable and valid, but that's not even what he led with. What did he say? He said, come and see. Come see for yourself. Like, don't take my word for it. Don't don't just depend on me, because I'm not going to be a perfect example of it. I'm not going to be a perfect representation of who this Jesus is that I'm telling you about. He just says, come and see. Which is such a, a, a reflection of the language that Jesus himself even used. He says, listen, just come and be with me for a bit. Come be around me. Come follow me. Be in my vicinity. You know, John uh, chapter one, verse thirty nine, right before this, that's exactly what he told them. He says, come and see in verse John, chapter one, verse thirty nine and John, chapter seven, verse thirty seven. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Just come. Just be here. Listen, we don't always have to have the answers when we're inviting people to church, when we're we're trying to share the gospel with people, when we're inviting people to an event or a small group or something like that. We don't have to have all the answers and we don't have to argue. It can simply be, hey, just come and see. Just come see for yourself. I want to invite you to experience with me. You know, and the thing that we have to remember with that, you know, and and for all of us, we can be very intimidated sometimes when we feel like, well, I don't want to invite somebody to church because there's going to be resistance. There absolutely may be resistance. There more times than not, there's going to be resistance. But the thing that you don't have to be intimidated by is you don't have to have the answers for why they should or shouldn't come. Because the reality of most people's experience, what I've seen or learned is that most people don't attend church or they don't practice regular religious activities because of two things, either distance or disappointment. It's because they've either been hurt by someone in church, by a pastor, by a member, and we've talked about this before, or, or they've, just, they've just been disappointed by a church member or something like that, or it's just distance, and we'll kind of talk about that later on, where they've just disconnected from it and they've grown just, it's just been so far away from them, just so far out of their mind that they've just lost the desire to participate in it, and so we're going to meet resistance in some way, shape, or form, and our answers they don't have to be that complicated. Now, they can be. I mean, man, God has provided us with so many resources to be able to, to be confident. But even in our invitation, it's not, we're not trying to convince them of something. We're not trying to argue something. For us as the church, we should be able to say, come and see. And the things that they see us doing and the people that we are should be enough. And we should be able to communicate that message freely and openly and then be able to live that out for them to be able to see. Because now the thing we have to understand about the come and see is that it requires authenticity from us. It requires us to be on our game is that we need to be real, not saying that we're perfect, but we need to be living this out. There is a responsibility for us to be living it out and be visible and to be speaking of things that match up in our life and that we're not saying we're perfect or that we've got it all together, but that those things match. So if we're saying come and see, church, we have to be giving them something to come and see. And it doesn't not say anything flashy. I mean, Lord, we're in a cafeteria right now with black curtains behind us. It doesn't have to be anything flashy other than just how we live. How we speak, how we act, that we're genuine, that we're authentic, that I do live like I love and believe in this God that I'm talking to you about and inviting you to come and see. And so not only should we be committed, should we commit to being an intentional witness? But the second thing, and we've talked about this earlier on in the study, that we would go and tell that we would go and tell 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 through 6. Paul speaks of the church of Corinth and how they can be those people that are, that are communicating something by how they live and what they say. He says, you yourselves, in verse 2, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and ready by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is, in, is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He says that everything you need to minister and, and evangelize the people around you is written on your heart by the spirit of God not by the law of rules or the do's and don'ts. He said it's written by the spirit of God on your heart when you put your faith in Jesus and he says that is enough and that is sufficient enough not in your own ability but in the sufficiency of God's ability in your life to step into those circles and to be that example and to be that minister to them. We have all been given, man and woman, been given the 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 job title of minister, the Bible tells us ministers of reconciliation, where we are stepping into that space and helping people reclaim their place with God, in God's family, at God's table, in God's kingdom work, that each and every one of us as Christians this morning, we have been given that responsibility and title to step into that. And so he's invited us into that. You know, we have to see Christ's intention, church. This is for us. We have to see that Christ's intention for each of us is to go and tell and not run and hide. To go and tell, to communicate that he's given us that ability through his sufficiency to go and to say that because of what he has done for us, what he has done through us and in us. And that we would communicate that. Psalm 96, verse 1 through 3, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among the people. Church, that we would be going and telling. We would be communicating that to people. We would be living it out and communicating this work of Jesus and what he's done. And so, as we kind of move to this space to wrap up this morning, um, one of the biggest things, and, and, and I say these things even for myself uh, in a lot of respects, and for us, I pray that we could really lean into to this portion this morning, uh, because as we commit to being an intentional witness, and as we go and tell, the thing we have to do before that is we have to recognize and repent of our excuses recognize and repent of the excuses that are keeping us from living this. And and maybe living this as uh, to my family, maybe living this to the one that you've been praying about and thinking about, or maybe just living this in your workspace or whatever that looks like, that we would recognize and repent of our excuses, the things that are keeping us from that. So what is it that's keeping us from this type of an intentional and missional attitudes? I have 10 things this morning and then we'll be done. But the first thing this morning that we need to repent of as Christians is spiritual lethargy, spiritual lethargy. And that word lethargy means a lack of energy or enthusiasm. You know, and for us as individuals, I know for me specifically, because I'm horribly out of shape, uh, my my endurance is terrible, that the lack of physical energy I have is a result of me not taking care of what I put into my body or how I use my body, right? There are some of you here that are in much better shape than I am, that can endure a run better than I can, a workout better than I can. We went to the batting cage yesterday and I took like 15 swings and I literally thought I was going to die in the batting cage. Like just terribly, I'm sore today because of it. And I used to do it every day. There was a point in my life where I did it every single day, week after week at a certain intensity. And I could do it and not feel tired and not feel exhausted. But now I'm at a point in my life because I have neglected to do those things. I have neglected to take care of myself. I have neglected to be that physically active that now when I try to do those things, I fall short, that I can't endure them as long. I don't even have a desire really to do it. And it's the same way in our spiritual life when we have this spiritual lethargy that spiritually it's the same principle that that it's because I've not. I've been obeying the, the lack of growth that leads to a diminished desire that I'm not working on my spiritual endurance. And 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 the people, you know, f- for people who stop attending church, the thing about it, they've lost their drive due to their loss of desire. And as we neglect to build up that spiritual endurance, as our endurance fades, as we stop pushing, our desire stops being there. You know, our desire will start to fade away. And so the, thing, the first thing we have to repent of is, is a spiritual lethargy. Father, forgive me for taking lightly the things you've called me to. God, forgive me for not building my spiritual endurance. God, forgive me for not investing more in my spiritual energy. To evangelize my family, evangelize my one, evangelize the people around me, minister to them, love them, work them, minister in the local church, whatever that looks like. Father, forgive me for my spiritual lethargy. The second thing this morning is growing inclusiveness. That we would repent of growing inclusiveness. That we would repent of ideas like all religions lead to God. That we would repent of all ideas that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, but can be found in good religion as long as people are good people. Church, the thing that this does is that it takes away from the beauty of who Jesus truly is and what Jesus truly came and did for us. Because the Bible tells us that our righteousness that our good deeds, as good as they may be in our eyes, are filthy rags before, filthy rags before a holy God. A perfect holy God sees our good as filthy rags, that our good can never be good enough. And the difference between our religion and any other religion in the world world, is that our religion is not a religion where we're striving for, working for, trying to earn the approval and the love of our deity. Every other religion in the world is constantly running uphill trying to find the approval of their deity. You know what our deity did? Our deity came down to earth, bore our sin and shame, hung on a cross, put our sins in his hands and put nails through it, bore the weight and the penalty of our sin for us to have eternal life. He says that he knew we couldn't earn it or deserve it and so he did the work for us. All we do is receive it. And so we can't ever say that all religions are okay or that all religions are good and that all religions lead to the same spot because church, they don't. The Bible tells us Jesus is the way. The Bible tells us because of his sacrifice that we can have communion with God before a holy God, because he bore our sin. He took the penalty. And so without he, without Jesus, that penalty still falls on me. That separation still stands between me, and our holy God. And so there is no inclusiveness besides the inclusion of Jesus, what Jesus has done. So the second thing is we repent of growing inclusiveness. The third thing we have to repent of is a disbelief in hell. Church, there is a real hell. And, you know, people always present hell as like this place of torture and all this stuff and, and pain. And, and, you know, for, I don't know about you, I don't know, if, but for me, there are a lot of times when I can, I can endure some pain, right? I can endure some pain. And let me tell you the worst thing about hell is not the pain, but it's the separation from a loving God. It's the absence of a moral deity who is God. That's. The worst part about hell is separation from God and church. That is a real place. That is a real place because if it wasn't a real place, why would Jesus have to bear our sin? Why why would he have to rectify what we messed up? When we have a disbelief that there is a real hell, it undermines the urgency of our faithful surrender to Christ. God's wrath is aimed at sin. And our escape from that is Jesus. John Piper said this. He said, the greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God, and doing it with a kind, serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure he is. That we would repent if we've ever thought in our mind that hell is not a real place. Because the reality is there are a lot of people around us That without the saving faith of Jesus, we'll end up eternally separated from this loving, merciful God that wants to bless us and be with us for all eternity. He's invited us into that space. The fourth thing that we would repent of is busyness. Busyness. That for us, that the lost and the unchurched around us would be on our to-do list. That we would enter that into, you know, we're all so busy, whether it's work or travel ball, you know, all these things that we participate in and, 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 you know, school with our kids and, you know, like for me, I I coach and try to help and do all these things. We try to get our kids involved in all the things we can, which is great, but the thing that we can't ever forget, especially in all of those spaces at the lost and dying world that are in those spaces, that we would be intentionally busting through the busyness That our hearts would ache for those living lives without the joy of knowing Christ. Our hearts should ache for those who are living lives without the joy of knowing Christ. Because God wants us to find joy in him. God wants us to walk in that confidence and we have to break through our busyness and and make it on our to-do list to share this joy with people around us. The fifth thing that we should repent of is fear of rejection. You know, the research shows that only one in four people will be resistant to faith discussions. That means 75% of the people that you share your faith with will be receptive to it. 75% of the people that you could potentially share your faith with are open to it. And, And the reality is any rejection that you do experience is not a reflection of you or how they feel about you. But in reality, it's more of this internal struggle that that they're fighting through this sin that they're fighting through or this 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 validity or this justification that they're trying to work through in their life. Because the reality is whenever people, whenever we or other people embrace a world system that is is, is based off of and worships a moral being that sets moral standards, it requires us to rethink a lot of decisions that we make. And so any resistance or rejection that you get is based out of that place where they're having to come to terms with the sin. And the mistakes and the things that they've done in their life. And that that is a place that we should come to. We should have to come to this place because that's the beginning of repentance. And repentance leads to faith and and, and salvation in Jesus. And so he tells that for us, we have to repent of the fear of rejection. We can't be afraid to be rejected, we can't be afraid to have a conversation where someone doesn't agree with us. The next thing is a desire to be tolerant. We have to, we have to repent of this desire to be, be tolerant. Because the gospel, in a sense, is intolerant. The gospel, in a sense, is intolerant. It insists that there is no other gods. It insists that God is a jealous God. It insists that there is a narrow way. It insists that there is no other name under heaven that offers salvation. Okay? so there is, But there is a difference. The thing I need us to understand is that there is a difference between patience and tolerance. Okay? Patience allows people to hear what we have to say to be in our spaces and to work through those things. Where tolerance tells them that those things that they're doing and living in are okay. We don't have to say things are okay if God's word tells us they're okay. They're not okay but we can be patient in the midst of them. So, for us as Christians, we should repent if we've ever been tolerant of people's sin that is tearing them down and destroying them but that we could still be patient as they work through those things and continue to communicate the hope and joy of Jesus in their life. The seventh thing is losing the habit of witnessing. That witnessing is a discipline. You know, and it can be regained. It's the same thing that we talked about earlier as that spiritual endurance and that lethargy that we would that we would continue to push through, that we would be intentional about how we live our lives in front of people, that we would not lose the habit of witnessing. You know, and witnessing is more of a visual thing. Uh, Evangelism is more of a, a verbal thing. But witnessing is how we live out our lives in front of people and that we would be intentional about being disciplined, about living differently than the world, that we would not be pragmatic. You've heard this word a lot, maybe before, where the word pragmatism means that you're trying to be like someone, to draw someone in. And for us as the church, we can't try to be like the world, to draw the world to us, because why would they want that? Why would they want to move from where they are to where we are if it's the exact same as where they are? We are called to be different. We are called to look different, to live different, to walk differently. And not in any pious way, like we think we're more important or that we have it all together than anyone else. But showing people that our faith lies in something more than what's put before me. You know, and this specifically presents itself in the way we interact and and face trials. This specifically... if reveals itself in the way that we face hardships and loss and those type of things specifically because they reveal that our hope is in something beyond what's right in front of us or what's directly around us. So we'd repent of losing the habit of being that kind of witness. The eighth thing is a lack of accountability. That we would have someone hold us accountable to our evangelism and our discipleship. Let someone know. Let someone know who you're ministering to. Let someone know what your intentions are so they can be praying with you and talking through it with you. We would repent about not having accountability in those areas. The ninth thing is the failure to invite. That we would repent of the failure to invite. That you would take someone to church. That you would promise to meet them at church. Making yourself mentally and physically available to make them comfortable at the church gallery. That we would be inviting people and that we would be making that comfortable for them as they come, being as, as, as inviting as we can. And the last thing, number 10, is a church not intent on reaching the lost. Some statistics say that it is said it takes 85 church members to reach an unsaved person. This is because of a lack of intention and a lack of passion. And one of the things I read this week is in the call for Christians is to step out of holy huddles. Step out of holy huddles. And start interacting with people. Interacting with the lost and dying around us. See the people in their mess. Not being afraid to step into certain situations. And to be an encouragement. Not separate ourselves so much that we've lost our influence on the people around us. We can't be afraid to be around sinful people. Okay? Because in reality, we're sinful as they are. Ours is just a little more tamed. We've kind of learned some control of ours. Other people around us, listen, they're still struggling. That's where that patience and tolerance comes in. That we would be a church, a people, an organism that is stepping out of holy huddles, stop surrounding ourselves only. Not that there's not benefit in being in a community of faith of Christians, but that we would not be so confined to a holy huddle that we kill our influence with the lost around us. That we would be intentional about that and repent of that. And so the last thing this morning, as I want to ask Landon to come and just play for a few minutes as we just kind of settle into a couple challenges this morning. And then we'll pray and we'll be done this morning. But, um, but I want to challenge you with something really quick. With three, thing, with three things to consider and then three things to be challenged by. Three things to consider and then three things to be challenged by this morning. And so the first thing to consider is, will you be intentional? Will you be intentional, choosing to participate in Christ's kingdom calling in your life? Finding your one, ministering to your kids, ministering to your family, that you would choose, that you would be willing to be intentional. The second thing I pray that you would consider this morning is that you will be accountable. That you would find someone in your life that you would say, hey, listen, this is this is the person that I, I'm, I just want to I want to evangelize them. I want to disciple them, help them grow in their knowledge of Christ. I want to show them, uh, re, you know, walk them through this process and what this looks like. Make them feel comfortable to be in the church gathering like, hey, this is who my one is or this is who I maybe it's your one of your kids. Maybe it's your spouse, whatever that might be that you would be praying and, and have someone hold you accountable to that. Hey, have you been having conversations? Have you been praying actively for them? Have you been showing them love and concern and compassion? You know, have someone hold you accountable. And then the last thing this morning I pray you would consider is, will you be mature as a disciple maker? And this involves us growing personally. That for us, that if we would intentionally be growing personally in our our own faith, that it makes us a more mature, mature disciple maker as we minister to people around us, as we evangelize them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And so three challenges, you know, we've talked about this. Who's your one thing? Like this isn't a short period of time. Hey, this is a commitment over a whole year, but I pray that you wouldn't wait till the end of the year to do it. And I pray that maybe you would even do these things more than once. Maybe it's with your one or maybe it's with someone else that you're evangelizing. You're sharing the gospel of Jesus with in your life. The first challenge this morning, I pray that you'd consider this that as a Christ follower, a Christian this morning, that you would invite one unchurched, unsaved person to breakfast, lunch, or dinner this year and share your testimony and tell the story of the gospel with them. Share your testimony and share the story of the gospel with them. That you'll invite one person to breakfast, lunch, or dinner and you'll share your story and the gospel with them. The second challenge is that you would invite one family in your neighborhood or in your circle of influence. Maybe as a couple, one of you share your story or as an individual as you share your story of coming to faith in Jesus. That you would invite a family into your home. And that you would share just your story specifically about what Christ has done in your life. And the last challenge this morning is that you would invite one unchurched person to attend church with you specifically. That you would make a point to make them comfortable, to be available if you have to go pick them up. Whatever it looks like. You would invite one person to church and like i said these things I, I'm, I'm not saying do this tomorrow or next week i'm saying over this year be intentional about leaning into someone's life sharing the gospel of jesus with them living this out in front of them and understanding that just how nathaniel would say in verse 49 he says you are the king of israel talking to jesus and then jesus tells him you will see greater things than these. The Bible tells us that as we step into God's purpose for us, that that King of Israel is on our side. Zephaniah 315, this is a verse from the Old Testament. He says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. God has forgiven you. And he says, he has cleared away your enemies. And he says, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. You shall never again fear your side and that he's cleared the enemy from your path and he's given you a straight path to the job and the task that he's called you to. Every one of us as Christians, we have the capability and the opportunity and the calling to find one and see the importance in that one. I mean, can you imagine if each and every one of us just in this room, we invested in one person, poured into them evangelized them, discipled them, see them come to faith in Jesus, who knows? You know, because every, I mean, when we think, even on this scale, you know, we think of the biggest minds, the biggest speakers, the biggest evangelists of our day. They all started out as unsaved believers that one person saw them worthy of sharing the gospel with. And now some of them reach thousands, millions, some of them reach hundreds, some of them maybe even they only reach a few makes it worth it for to see the growth and the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. Church, I just want to ask you to bow your heads and pray with us this morning as we consider these things, that we'd be intentional, that we would not be afraid, that we'd step into the kingdom work that God's called us to and be confident, not in our own sufficiency, but in his sufficiency. Pray. Father, God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you call us to a task that is so much bigger than ourselves. God, I, I just, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask that we would be challenged as Christians. God, that we would be investing in people's lives. We would be inviting people into this space. That we would be a, a living church, an organism that is active in our circles, in our families, in our workplaces, in our community here in De Quincey. God, in the communities that we live in, we would be so intentional, that we would tell them, God, that we would repent of any of these things that are keeping us, God, that are keeping us from walking in your calling. God, I, I pray you forgive me where I felt you. God, I pray that you forgive me of the places where I've neglected to be an intentional witness. God, and I pray that we collectively this morning could repent of that. God, and I pray for maybe the one here this morning. God has never truly put their faith in you. Never started to walk in that walk and and begin to have confidence in your saving work for the forgiveness of their sins so that they can begin to move their lives forward free of shame, free of guilt, free of hurt. God, and to be able to face every obstacle knowing that the King of Israel is on their side, that they have a seat at the Father's table as a child of God. Lord, I pray this morning that you offer that person the confidence to ask for forgiveness and to put their faith and their trust in you. God, and to be able to live as a believer of God. Child of God's with faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you just challenge us as a church. God, I pray you continue to use us in the ways that you would have us to, to be in this community. God, I love you in Jesus' name.